So in the first six weeks we were married, we lost 85% of our income, took us from what would have been about $120,000 combined down to under $30,000. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. And so today's intro is a little bit different. Usually, Justin and I record these, you know, four or five days in advance. But I'm recording this on Monday, March 16th, one day before this episode is coming out, because this whole coronavirus thing has been pandemonium in my life and Justin's life, and I'm sure in many of your lives around the country. So for me, I had to cancel my trip to Cyprus to visit our good friends, James and Emily. I was super pumped about that trip. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to reschedule, do that later in the year. Justin right now is stuck over in California. He was planning on going skiing, but the mountain shut down. It has just been complete chaos. So wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this from, please stay safe. Justin and I wish you nothing but the best during these super difficult times. We're definitely going to be releasing an episode talking about the virus, the effects it's had on our lives, on other people's lives in the community, and especially on the economy as a whole. But we do have a shimmer of light with today's awesome guest. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Have you ever told yourself, this is the year that I'm going to save a bunch of money, and somehow that year is over and you have not saved even close to as much money as you'd wanted? What if this whole process could be automated? Our partner, Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, has created an awesome mobile app that makes it super easy to automate your savings. Whether it's saving up for your next vacation, or saving up for your next rental property, or saving up for that concert next summer, this autosave feature can help you get there. Just set your weekly savings target and let Empower do the rest of the work. That's right, Cody. And don't forget about the other awesome feature of Empower, where you can send simple text messages to Empower's human coaches and get personalized recommendations in return. So if you have a savings goal this year, you've got to check out the Empower app. Download Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, in the App Store or Play Store. I did, and over 650,000 other people have too. And as a special bonus to our listeners, you can get $5 if you use the offer code FISHOW, as well as meet your savings goal. So visit empower.me slash Fi show for more details. Today we have the pleasure of bringing on Christine, who we met down at Camp Fi and has just an amazing story where her and her husband lost almost all of their income after finding her dream job. And then when she's sitting there in such a bad point in life, she comes to Camp Fi, she gets inspired, and then she starts this business that now is making over $300,000 in revenue. But we don't want to give away the entire story. Take it away, Christine. Yeah, I actually had a pretty high financial acumen even growing up. Every year, my folks would send my brothers and I to my grandparents' house. This is my dad's mom and dad. And my grandmother would teach us all about the t- stock market. Like from the time I was eight, we would sit upstairs where there was the TV and we would watch the ticker tape on CNBC. And I just remember that my grandmother would have us pick out different symbols. So like McDonald's was one, IBM was one. And she would tell us, tell every time you hear this symbol, it means that a stock was either bought or sold. And you, I want you to tell me how much it sold for or how much it was bought for. Cause she was trying to get it to a certain number, you know, like not necessarily that she was going to sell it. She just wanted to get us interested. And then she also did this really awesome thing. When you think about next generation or second generation FI is instead of like in lieu of any gifts, she would purchase us a couple of stocks every year and she would do things like McDonald's, Disney, Ford Motor Company, because we grew up in Michigan. 
So she tried to make sure that we had a portfolio that we could track and we could write her about and make sure that we were following it on our own. That was kind of cool. Yeah, it's definitely a really awesome story. I don't think we you know, hear that one too much. I mean, we see a lot of, oh, somebody gave me some chores or they taught me the lessons of saving or we were frugal, but very often to that degree of actually picking out companies. Now, did you have like a little total where you could watch the ones that you had picked out and see how they were performing and, you know, see how well you were doing? You know, we would kind of try to go through that once a year, like how well they were doing. And then when I graduated college in 2005, it makes me sound old now that we're in 2020. Uh, <laughs> when I graduated in 2005, I opened up MSN Money used to have this great portfolio. They don't anymore, sadly, but I started tracking everything and it would import the dividends and everything. And it was amazing to watch it grow and just go back and look and remind myself of how many shares she had bought us versus how many shares we own now after reinvesting dividends. So as soon as I got out of college, I started investing in stocks on my own. And so I know we just jumped from you watching the TV with grandma to the end of your college career. Were you always interested in like personal finance? Did you go to school for finance or business? Or could you just kind of give us some of those years? You know, I'm not sure that I was always super interested in it. I have to say that when you're eight years old and you're sitting and watching the ticker tape, that is not a fun way to spend your summer. So I'm not sure I really appreciated all of the information that I got until I got out into the working world. So we would work and in high school and in college, and I would save. And I, we were always taught the importance of a high savings rate and try to save as much as you possibly can. And then we talked about compounding a lot at my house and talked about investing and then living off the interest. So I feel like I was very lucky and getting a lot of very good information that the typical Americans don't necessarily get at a young age. So I didn't really get interested in it on my own until after I graduated college. And as you're going into college, picking your degree, one thing I always like to ask is, was your degree choice a monetary decision or how did you come about it? Oh, that's a good question. It was not a monetary decision. It's kind of random, actually. So I really wanted to make print advertisements. And so I started out in the marketing department in the business school at Western Michigan University, which has a huge business school. And my entire freshman year, my first semester, I was in these classes with like 350, 400 people. And it was just not my thing. And one day I went to get a, I think it was called a graphic arts minor. And I went to the school of art and they said, oh, we don't do that here. You have to go to the school of printing. And I said, printing, what the heck is that? So I go to this tiny building over in the corner of campus. I didn't even know existed. Walk in and sure enough on the walls in the display case, they had print advertisements that the students had made. And I was like, oh, this is definitely something. So I scheduled my first class to take my minor. And by the end of that semester, I switched over to that being my major. So I studied printing out of the School of Engineering. And so let's go post-college. You get out of college, you graduate. What was that first job like? Oh, the first job was, it was not great. <laughs> I decided to live where I wanted to live, which was Denver, Colorado. So I got a job offer there before I actually left school. So on the day of graduation, I did have a job and I took a job for less money than other offers that I had gotten and less money than typically somebody with my degree would have gotten just to live in Colorado. It was a training program at a printing company. It was kind of like a management training program, but I left after about 10 months because it was just not what I was looking for. There was doing a lot of office training like in accounting and then doing estimating and all these, it was just not out in the shop, which is where I really wanted to be. 
So I know from my computer engineering degree that getting a degree in engineering can lead you down actually a lot of different paths. Like you could end up in a lot of different fields. So did you ever settle into one as far as like a specialty in engineering? Yeah, I did. So because I studied printing, I kind of stuck with that. And I started studying a little bit more at the process engineering side of things. So setting up systems, trying to improve yields and workers' lives, just because when you're working on equipment all day, how can we make things easier for them? So I spent eight years working in printing manufacturing plants. And so while you're working in these printing manufacturing plants, as Justin had alluded to earlier, you had access to this insanely valuable information that 99.9% of the population does not even have any comprehension of, like being able to live off your investment income and saving a bunch of money and compound interest, all that awesome stuff. Were you actively like saving as much as you possibly could with the goal of early retirement? Or what was your financial mindset like at that point? So early retirement was not words that was in my vocabulary. I'm not sure that fire was really a thing back then in 2006, but I was saving as much as I could. And I was investing, I think it was $200 a month. So it was not a lot, but I wasn't making a whole lot of income either. My first job, I was making 35,000 a year and I had my own apartment. I didn't really pursue the house hacking thing quite like I would these days. If I could go back and do it over again, I would have just gotten a roommate and made it happen and made some friends in a new city. So you have that first job, you're there for like 10 months, you're in this new city, but after that 10 months, you just, you know, you're not enjoying the job. So you leave. Do you stick around in Denver? Do you try to kind of pivot in your career? Yeah, I did. I stuck around in Denver for a total of about two and a half, almost three years. I moved down the street to another printing company where I was a project manager over there. And I did like that a lot better, but I was really still looking for something different. And I was looking for something that was going to be a little bit more technical. And I found out that that kind of a position in a printing plant was not going to be available for me in the Denver area. So that was when I took my first job as an official engineer. I was a process engineer, the only one at a printing plant in Texas. So I moved to small town Texas as a career move. Okay. And so I know that this engineering story does not continue too much farther if I'm getting these years right in my head and it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Could you tell us what happened next? Sure. So I was in Texas for a couple of years and then I got a great job that I thought I was really going to love. And I did enjoy it here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live now. So I moved to Nashville to be the senior engineer for a plastics company. In fact, they produced baby diapers. So that was kind of cool. Got to print Elmo and superheroes all day long. It's kind of fun. But I was let go in May of 2013. And that was when my whole world just turned around. And in this career field, were you like on edge thinking like something like this could happen? Was it something you kind of expected coming down the line or did it seem like a super stable career field to be in and you didn't really have any thought of getting fired? Well, I didn't really expect for it to happen in the beginning. I definitely didn't expect for it to happen. Printing has changed a lot since I graduated in my field. As you can imagine, there's not quite as many printed materials and junk mail and advertisements as there were back in 2001 when I chose the career. But in this particular situation, they were making some pretty radical changes as far as the workflow of their business. And so they were going to be eliminating my position. And so I had a few choices and I was not in a position where I wanted to take on any more work, specifically not any more work at no additional pay. So I decided to move down to a regular process engineer. And that was just kind of the beginning of the end because I found out that I just wasn't enjoying it as much as I was. 
And honestly, I was getting really burnt out. When you work in 24-hour manufacturing, there are things happening all the time. And I was kind of a major point to call. So I would get a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night and have to be there all hours of the day and in the middle of the night and then still be there for my meetings during the day. So I was getting pretty burnt out. So honestly, when the acts came, I was not very disappointed when it all happened. Not until a few months later when I found out it was a lot harder to find another job in the area. And so I'm cheating a little bit here because I know your story from hearing your awesome speech at Camp Fi. But when did your now husband come into the equation? And then I'd like to kind of round out going to the same exact point in time when he had some unfortunate things happen to his income as well. Yeah. So my husband and I met in 2011, end of 2011. And he was kind of around for all of this first layoff. So he was around the first time that I was laid off. In fact, we were living together. We were starting to plan a wedding, kind of not quite officially engaged, but really seriously talking about getting married. So he kind of helped me through the nine months of unemployment. I was able to get what I thought was my absolute dream job just a couple months before we got married. And during our honeymoon, the contract that I was hired for was pulled And that meant that they didn't need me anymore. So they laid me off within the first 90 days that I was there. That was two days after we got back from our honeymoon, which was absolutely devastating. And then my husband, about three or four weeks after that, he lost his most lucrative and longest gig. He works in the music industry here in Nashville. So most of the people that work in music here are self-employed. And he had this one gig that was about 40%, it was probably 60% of his income. So in the first six weeks we were married, we lost 85% of our income, took us from what would have been about $120,000 combined down to under $30,000. So I just can't imagine like the shock that comes with that. I mean, you're already starting off this new marriage, you're kicking that off. You have all these things to look forward to, and then your income just gets slashed like that. So could you just walk us through like, What did that look like for the first few weeks? What kind of changes did you have to make just to make ends meet? Yeah, it was horrible. Being unemployed is horrible, especially when you're used to working a lot of hours. It's just very difficult to not have a purpose to get up for every day. And then combine that with the lack of income, we had to make some pretty immediate changes. So we moved out of our beautiful rental home that we had actually hoped to buy. It was Within a week of my husband losing his gig that the owners, we had told them we wanted to buy the house and they let us know that we could have it if we wanted it. (laughs) And of course, then we couldn't afford it because we had lost all of our income. So we had to move out of this beautiful house into a pretty crummy rental that we could afford on the other side of town. And we cut everything. We just cut everything that we possibly could because we were determined, even though I had investments and we had savings, I didn't want to pull from the investments. I wanted to be able to live off of whatever income we were making and try not to deplete our savings so that we could still purchase a house someday. And so like emotionally, I know something you just mentioned was like having trouble getting out of bed every day. Like, did it just emotionally crush you or are you back out the next week, you know, on every single job board trying to find the next thing? Oh no, I wish I could say that. No, it absolutely crushed me. I mean, there, yeah, it was, it was horrible. It's probably one of the worst times in my life. In fact, I I remember there was a day not too long after being let go or downsized the second time that I was in my car driving somewhere. And I'll never forget. I know exactly where I was on the highway in Nashville. And I just screamed as loud as I could, which I've never, I don't know if anybody's ever done that in their life, but 
it will shock you the sound that comes out when you just like scream bloody murder. But I was so frustrated that I felt like I was not no longer in control of my destiny. I felt like I was no longer in control of my life. And it was really at that point that I decided that I would never let the entirety of my income be in somebody else's hand ever again. Because when you lose two jobs in 13 months, and these are two like fairly, I mean, higher income job in the 70,000 range, it just, it's absolutely devastating. And I just said, never, ever again, am I going to let someone else, one person control this or one company control the entirety of my income. So after you make this kind of bold promise to yourself that you're never going to let all your income come from another person again, I imagine like you had to a little bit, like there had to be a bridge to get you from that moment in time to a time where you could become self-sustaining. So what did that look like? I mean, did you try to find some jobs that would help you get experience in something that, that you then wanted to take and spin off or, you know, how'd you approach it? Sure. That's a great question. I'll say for my mental state after having just been unemployed for so long and during that time, I wasn't working, doing anything. That would be something else that I would change looking back now. But I was just applying for jobs, applying for jobs. And for my mental state, I needed to be productive. So I signed up to drive for Lyft, which was brand new here in Nashville. And I started working as a waitress at a brunch restaurant that my husband and I used to frequent often. So I started waitressing, which I'd never done in my life. And I was driving people around in Lyft. And I found out that I really liked it. And I got to kind of control my schedule a little bit more. That was also when I learned that you have the ability when you work hourly, you actually have the ability to control how much money you make to a certain extent. And that was kind of fun too. I feel like actually leaving this very steady, I'll say 40 hour a week job, that's in definite quotations because it was more like a 60 hour a week job. I didn't realize how many more options there are to make money because I wasn't exposed to that growing up at all. But really when you get outside that typical framework of a full-time job, there are so many opportunities to make money. So I just kind of started dabbling in a lot of different things. Ended up bartending. I was tour guiding for a little while. It was really fun to kind of just try new things that I've never had the opportunity to try before. And so I think if my timeline is correct, again, we have a very similar turning point in our journeys. And this is January 2018. Although we missed each other by a week, I went to Camp Five Southeast week one You went to week two and it just completely rocked your world and changed all of your assumptions about yourself. I know all the things you're just mentioning, you're doing the bartending, the lifting, all the other stuff that you're doing to make money. What was that pivot point like? And then what did the next couple of months after that Camp Fi look like for you? Yeah. So at Camp Fi 2018, I went to week two. It was the first time I had been to a financial event and it was amazing to hear all of these different stories of how people were pursuing financial independence. And a really amazing thing happened. So I was in this point in my life where I had built this life that I really loved because it revolved around my schedule and I could work as much or as little as I wanted to. And we were in a place where we could pay our bills. So I was starting to challenge people to really add some more fun into their life because in 2018, a lot of the five folks, it was really about grinding it out and retiring as early as possible. So I was challenging a lot of people. And on the last day, a woman named Lori Adams challenged me back and she said, Christine, I challenge you to start your own tour company. Now, that came from the fact that I was working for somebody else at the time who had just cut my pay in half and I was debating whether or not I could continue to afford to work for them. So I got this big challenge and I went, oh man, that's really hard. (laughs) Could you (laughs) pick something easier? 
But I knew that since I was challenging other people and I really wanted them to follow through, that I had to follow through on my own. So sure enough, I came back home and by the end of the month, I talked to the company I was working for and I quit there and I started up a little local flavor food tours in Nashville. We started, we officially launched in May of 2018. So it took a couple months to kind of get everything together. And then we launched in May. So for those listening who don't know what a food tour is, before we get too deep into the mechanics of the business, just tell us what a food tour is. Yeah, that's a great question. Most people don't know, so don't feel bad if you don't know. But a food tour is uh, really amazing. So in our, I'll just give you our version of it. It's a three-hour tour, and most food tours do last about three hours. And it involves getting food and sometimes alcohol from multiple different restaurants. So think maybe progressive meal. That's not exactly how ours particularly works, but where you're kind of going into restaurants and you're getting the best dish from that restaurant. And then it also includes a lot of times stories about the restaurants and about the food. And ours includes a history tour of downtown Nashville as well. So it's kind of everything all in one, a little bit more communal experience than a typical just walking tour. Sounds like my kind of party. (laughs) No, it's a good time. So obviously up to this point, well, what we've heard from your story, you had basically zero experience running your own business. Could you talk about some of those initial hurdles and how you overcame them? Sure. So everything was new. And every day I woke up going, oh my gosh, I have no idea what the what the heck I'm doing. So specific hurdles, I had to overcome fear a lot because everything that I had to do was very out of my comfort zone. Of course, if you're taking a bunch of people to restaurants, you have to work with the restaurant owners. So even going and talking to other business owners when I didn't feel like a business owner myself was really tough. But I decided that I was going to take action every single day to move myself forward. So seven days a week, I would pick something, even if it was something small that I could do to move the business forward. And what was amazing about that is I think a lot of people get caught up in what's the right thing to do or what's the next thing that I should do. And it's a lot of time kind of weeding out what should I be doing next. And when you're doing something every day, it becomes less about doing the right thing and more about just doing something. I also got a lot of my guidance through podcasts. So I'm a huge podcast consumer and I found some really great ones that just kind of helped me along my journey. And so I'd listen and when I was struggling with something or like when I wanted to know how to market my business, I'd look up a bunch of podcasts about marketing and listen to them for a little while. And when I had to hire a team, I would look up and find podcasts about how to hire a team. So that was kind of how I, how I built everything was just through what I, what I learned through podcasts. Since the origins of this business sort of came from the fact that you did end up getting fired from a career that you had been involved in, and now you're trying to start this new thing, was there a lot of fear there of failure? And if so, how did you manage that and set expectations? Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of fear of failure all the way around, going back to leaving this pretty high-powered career to go from that to being like a bartender and a waitress and a Lyft driver that was really tough. So I will say it ended up being a benefit because during that period of of my life or of the story, I had to learn to not attach my identity to what I was doing because my identity, and I'm sure Justin, you understand that my identity was, I was an engineer. That was a huge part of who I was. And that was a huge part of what I did with my week working, you know, 60 plus hours a week. So I had already had to like strip that down. And that's a pretty awful experience if anybody's 
had to go through that. So I at least had had that going in. And then I think that I had a fear of failure, but at the same time, because of the lower, you know, lower income, lower pay rate, lower on the scale of, you know, hierarchy of jobs, I kind of also figured like, why not? Like, I didn't feel like I had anything to lose. So that kept me going. All right. So we're definitely going to get into the numbers at some point because we have a bunch of numbers nerds listening to the show, Justin and I included. But one thing I want to dive into, and it's interesting the way that you've kind of positioned your business is you're really into relationships and using social currency and treating people like humans, not just like this is the cheapest I'm going to pay you and I'm all about the profit. So could you talk about why you went with that business model and how it's kind of fared for you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started, I had, I think I mentioned I was working for a tour company and they had cut my pay basically in half after working for them for two and a half years. And I decided that I would never do that to anybody. And I also, to be honest, as an engineer, I'm not sure that I ever had a great boss that I wanted to model. The great bosses that I modeled are the people that I worked for in the restaurant industry. So what I thought was neat is as I built this team, I really want to give people the opportunity to work for a great company with good values and with a good leader. Now, I don't know that I'm a great leader. I think I'm learning, but I'm very honest about what I know and what I don't know. And we pay our people really well. And what's amazing is I've structured the business in a way to where they make good money on the tours. And then secondarily, I give them opportunities to make more money. So for example, our business was built on reviews. And so for every five-star review that they get in their name, with their name on it, they get a little bump in pay every week, or sorry, that happens every month. If they ever sign up a group of people that's four or more, then I give them a little bit of a commission on that. And then at the end of the year, depending on how many tours they've done, I give them a bonus. So there's ways that they can increase their income weekly, monthly, and yearly. And it's basically whenever they do things that are going to directly affect our bottom line. And how that's really, that's done so well for us because what it means is it's not just me out there marketing my business. All of my employees feel like they have a hand in it as well. And so they're out there marketing and talking about it to people and it gets them really involved, not necessarily from an ownership standpoint, but they feel like a piece of it is theirs as well. And then outside of that, I just believe that appreciation is extremely underutilized in the business world. I think that a lot of people that are unhappy in their jobs would be significantly happier if they felt appreciated. So we try to put this into every aspect of our business. So the restaurants that we visit once a quarter, we will take them little gifts. Like we'll bring in donuts in the morning after a really busy weekend, or we'll bring in coffee or we'll bring in something so that even the employees at the restaurants feel valued. Because I feel like when you build a business where everybody feels like they're winning. So our, our guides and our employees feel like they're appreciated and they're paid well. Our restaurants, we tip all of the servers, we tip all the musicians, we you know pay for the food and the alcohol. So they win. And then of course our customers win and we win. We've built this business where everybody wins. And I think that has been really the key to us growing as fast as we have. So there's two big things there that, that jumped out to me. I mean, one is that you didn't just put profits first. Like you, you're incentivizing your people. You're giving back to them. You're making it so that everybody wins. You're building a business that that can grow and become something. Whereas I think it would be probably tempting, especially coming from the amount of income you lost, to just focus in on just getting that money as as soon as possible. But you know, you chose not to do that. And you chose to give back and to build 
this really sustainable business. And it got me to thinking about another thing I've heard you mention, which is social currency. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what it is you mean when you say that. Yeah. So I found that social currency is really important. And it's something that is used a lot here in Nashville. And I'm not sure it's used very much in a typical city. So for example, Nashville, of course, we're music city. There's a lot of musicians, the folks that play on music on Broadway and downtown, they're typically not paid at all except through tips. And so what this all does is you have this huge community of people that are just trying to make it in Nashville. They're trying to make it with these like kind of 1099 or tip only positions. And so you find that there's this really strong community, not just downtown, but as you get into the neighborhoods as well, but where you really see it is downtown. So the musicians have a great community and then the restaurant workers tend to have a great community as well because you're dealing with the same level of crazy at all of these different bars and restaurants. So it's kind of like when you tell somebody, oh yeah, I work downtown, you just have an in everywhere because people know all of the crazy things that you deal with. So social currency to me is really giving to people. So it's trying to connect people. So I really try to connect people to the jobs that they want. And then other ways of social currency are, gosh, just being thankful. I think one of the things that we did was even when I worked for another company, there was a couple bartenders that would always help us out or help me out particularly. And so I knew that they love flowers. So I grew cut flowers in my yard at the time. I'd bring them down there and they've been huge supporters of our business. So I think just generosity is something that builds social currency. When you are willing to help people out, whether or not it's convenient for you, when you need a favor, there's a whole army of people that show up. And that definitely benefited us when we started this business because my husband and I really try to build community and we try to give as much as we can. You know, a lot of that was of our time or of our skills. And so when we started this business, we had a definitely pretty decent sized community that did everything they could to help make sure that the word was spread and that we would be successful. All right. I think it's time to roll up our sleeves and dive into the numbers a little bit. So you started a little local flavor in May of 2018. Could you just walk us through what the numbers looked like for those first seven months of 2018? And then I know 2019, you just had a breakthrough year, but I'd love if you could walk the audience through what that looked like for you, both mentally and fiscally. Sure. Absolutely. Mentally and fiscally. I like that. (laughs) You should tag that. It's a great one. So we started in May of 2018. And as you can imagine with any business, it starts slow. And by slow, I remember even in July and August, my goal was if we can have 14 people a week, just 14 people. And we ran tours seven days a week. So it's like two people a day. So it started out really slow. Our biggest month of the year was October of that year where we broke 200 for the first time. We did about 230 people that month. And by the end of 2018, so that first eight months, we did 965 guests. And uh, I think it was about 65 or 66,000 in sales. Then going into 2019, I had some ambitious goals, but they weren't that ambitious. I was thinking that we would continue to grow, but man, we shot up like a rocket. So 2019, we started the year, it was me and one other tour guide. We ended the year with eight employees, including myself and my husband. And we hosted 393 tours, 4,400 people, and sales were right at $330,000. So it was wild. And people that I never would have guessed heard about us, like we did tours for Amazon and American Express and Cheddar's Restaurants and 
they found us, which was just so shocking to have enough of a reputation that these big companies are coming to you and asking to be a part of your tour. So it was really amazing. That is incredible growth. And those are incredible numbers. And I'm sure when you set out to do this, you probably didn't imagine that that quickly you would be in these multiple six figure marks for the year. But to continue digging into this number, because we just talked about how much, you know, you kind of gave back and did put profits first. What does your profit margins look like? So if it's 330,000 gross, what are you actually getting to take home? Well, I was happy with my income last year because it is going to be in the similar range to what I lost as an engineer or what I was making as an engineer. But it looks like last year, our profit margin was about 23%. That's something that we're really working on here in 2020. Because as what I found is that now that we're growing, I need to hire more people than just tour guides. So I hired a part-time assistant that actually started today. Very excited about that. Hopefully that will take some work off of my plate so I can do some more things to kind of grow the business. So profit margin is something that we're working on, but the way that we're working on it is by providing more value to our guests. So it's not just raising the prices to raise the price. I want to make sure that whenever anybody trusts me with their money, that we are going to over deliver in value. So we've got a lot of cool, exciting things that are going to launch in about a month. I'm really excited about. Well, it sounds like you're building the business right. Like it sounds like you're taking this thing where, you know, it's not just all Christine, you're building this team. So if you want to scale, like, I don't know if you have plans to scale out of Nashville or just take over Nashville, basically, you can do that because you're putting these systems in place, like the assistants and all these tour guide employees. Is that correct? That is correct. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to take it out of Nashville, but we're definitely going to be launching some new tours. So everything we did last year, surprisingly, was just on one tour offering in one neighborhood. So there's still, I've got plans for about four more here in Nashville, and then we'll see where life takes us. I would love to see a little local flavor go to other cities. That would be exciting. So I saw where your goal for 2020 is 500,000. You're talking about expanding to multiple tours. You're talking about increasing your profit margins. But what about for you yourself, for Christine? Like, How much time do you want to be spending on this business every week? And how do you see kind of your progress towards financial independence going alongside of that? You know, do you plan on just completely automating and kind of retiring, going halftime? What does that look like? That's an excellent question. (laughs) It's one that I've thought a little bit about. I've been trying not to have too many expectations because we've blown through all of the goals and expectations that I've had. So it's a little tough to plan. But in 2020, what I'm hoping is that this is not going to be a machine that's just driven by Christine. So I'm hoping that we've got that we've got more people. We're starting to put in more systems in place, more management structure so that I can really work on the things in the business that I really love. Like for example, offloading accounting so that I can build more tours. I would love to speak at some more events. So Camp 5 was the first kind of official event that I spoke at. And that's something that I would like to do more of. So what I'm hoping is not necessarily to retire, but to be able to transition into a place where maybe I could take this knowledge and these skills that I've learned in small business ownership and building a business without very much initial investment and start to kind of put that out into the world and small chunks or big big chunks. Not really sure what that's going to look like yet, but hoping to be able to give back in that way. So Christine, a common theme that I know is a part of your story is community, whether it be the Phi community who in 2018, you know, you got introduced to strongly at Camp Phi and pushed you off on this journey. 
I know I've also heard in your story that maybe you met some people within your industry and now being a part of a group, a mastermind group outside of your industry. Can you just talk to me about the importance of finding that community and what you would tell somebody who was out there looking to start their own business as far as finding their own community? Yeah, absolutely. So community when you're starting a business, I think is extremely important because there's so many challenges and there's so many emotional hurdles that you run across all the time. It's not necessarily a straight line, that's for sure. So it's almost like day to day, you're like, oh, I got to say, oh, this is really great. And then it's not surprising if an hour later, you're like, oh man, I'm not getting any sales and this is terrible. And I don't know how we're ever going to make it. So it really is, especially in the beginning, it's like up and down and all over the place. And I knew that I needed to be around more people that own their own business. And specifically, I wanted to meet more people that had a team. So at, believe it or not, there's a food tour convention. It's really fun. We eat a lot. It's great. But at my first food tour convention, I met three other amazing women that own food tours in different cities around the country. And we decided to meet once a month. And it's not necessarily meeting in person. We just do a phone call once a month. And that has been incredible to really talk to people in our industry, to talk about the specific challenges that we had. And what was really neat is in our industry, I'll say food tourism specifically, a lot of people have not been really open to share what they're doing because it's, you know, people don't necessarily want to build their next biggest competitor. So it was nice to have this group of three people that were all kind of doing things a little bit differently. And we were able to incorporate the best of what each other were doing. So that was amazing. We've been doing that since October of 2018. And then last year in July of 2019, I joined a formal mastermind. It's Total Life Freedom with Vincent Puglisi. And that just changed my whole world all over again. So that is a weekly mastermind that happens for two hours. And it's people from all different types of industries. And that was hugely eye-opening because when you get outside of just your industry of tourism, you find out that there's businesses that are way further along in the ideas of marketing. I mean, there's just so much information out there and there's so many people that do things way differently than I've ever been exposed to. So that was a huge factor in us really leveling up last year with our sales and our revenue. Yeah, that was huge, was joining that mastermind and meeting a lot of people with all sorts of different skills that I didn't possess. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Your story is just so powerful. I mean, Going from having essentially no income right after becoming a newlywed, getting rejected by your own industry, which leads you to start this business that's poised to generate over a half million dollars of sales next year is just an incredible story. So thank you so much for coming on and thank you for being so transparent and giving us those numbers because I'm sure there's some people out there who are considering opening their own business and this is going to be super helpful for them. If listeners want to bounce more questions off of you or find more out about you and your amazing story, where's the best place for them to contact you? I would say probably email. My email is info, I-N-F-O, at a littlelocalflavor.com. So that would be the best place to contact me. We're also, of course, on social media, Facebook and Instagram at a little local flavor. Or if you're coming to Nashville, we'd love to have you on a tour. And our website is a littlelocalflavor.com. Awesome. And Christine, one question we'd like to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence? That's an excellent question. I've got two. Is that allowed? That's allowed. They connect. Okay. (laughs) So I've got two that kind of connect. So the first is think outside the box. So think outside the box of your normal, whatever you've been taught. But if you're working a full-time job and you think that that's the only way to do it, 
think outside that box because there's so many other opportunities out there. And secondarily, I don't necessarily believe that starting a business is right for everybody, but I think having or dabbling in some side hustles is a great way to get started and seeing whether or not you would want to start your own business. But I think that people, when you think outside the the box of just being a full-time employee, you realize that there are so many opportunities and so many different ways that you can make an income that a lot of times can surpass what you might be making at a full-time job. Okay, Christine. So now comes the most fun part, at least for us, of the episode, which is the last question, also known as the wild card question. This is a question I didn't prepare for, Cody didn't prepare for, so obviously you didn't, but are you ready? I'm ready. All righty. So the wild card question is going to be a little bit of an inside scoop from a little local flavor. I just want you to tell us what is the craziest thing that you overheard guests talking about, like in public at a table where you're like, God, I can't believe they're talking about this in public. Oh, that's a good question. I do have some crazy ones, but there's one that's sticking out and it's not crazy in the way that you expect, but I'm going to tell the story anyway, because it just is popping out. So my favorite part about food tours is that you are dining around a table, right? You get this group of strangers and you're putting them around a table and you're eating and you're not just doing it once, you're doing it five or six times. So people get to know each other a little bit deeper kind of as the tour goes on. And I'll never forget, we were at the George Jones Museum, sitting on the rooftop bar. And there were two separate couples across the table from each other. And they had realized that the husband from one couple went to the same private school in Puerto Rico, maybe, as the wife of the other couple. And they had even the same instructors. And it was just totally wild that they kind of, they think they were like five years apart, so they never met each other. But it's amazing how many people realize that they know the same person, even though they've never met before in their entire lives. So that was kind of a really crazy story. Well, Christine, this has been a ton of fun. I know that I was super inspired when I first heard your story. So we were really excited to get you on the show. You shared a bunch of insights through struggling through adversity, struggling through starting your own business, and now you're crushing it. You're an inspiration to a bunch of people in the FI community who maybe are thinking about starting a business and they just haven't made the leap yet. So thank you so much for spending your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure being here with you guys. Definitely was a huge fan of this episode, Justin. I know both of us heard Christine's story down at Camp Five Southeast, but hearing it again on the podcast and kind of getting to dig deeper into some of the stuff that we couldn't ask while she was giving a full-on presentation at Camp Five was a ton of fun. What'd you think about it, man? Yeah, I love this episode and I love Christine. I feel bad for the listeners who didn't get a chance to actually meet her in person and get to see her give her talk in person at Camp Fi because it was literally a tearjerker. Everybody in the room, you know, was pulling out the tissues. She just has such a cool story and it's so inspiring and you can just see it coming out of her. It's very genuine when you see her talk. And I know that we covered a lot of the adversity that she faced in the story. Like she got laid off twice. Her and her husband lost 85% of their income. And it was just crazy. And she ultimately kind of gets to this point. This is what I really want to focus on. Because I think a lot of times the side hustle or taking control of your old time gets a little bit over glorified if you're not doing something that you're passionate about. And so Christine was driving for Lyft and waitressing. And she ultimately ended up working for that tour guide company. But these weren't places that were treating her like a person. They weren't treating her like an employee, like Lyft is a huge corporation. Maybe the waitressing thing wasn't that bad. She didn't talk about that too much. But the tour company she was working for just cuts her pay in half, 
with not really any good reason at all. And she just felt like she was not getting treated right. So I think that was a really good example when she kind of made that light bulb moment was like, okay, I have a lot of control over my time, but I'm not getting treated like an employee. I'm not having fun. I'm not enjoying my day to day. I'm not enjoying the things I was doing. And that's kind of what ultimately ended up after she went to Camp Fi to get inspired to go and start her own business, a little local flavor. Yeah, the other thing I love about it is when you find yourself in one of those situations where you're not happy with your work, you're not getting treated well, you're not getting paid fairly, is to be able to look around and survey your skills. And oftentimes we look at that and we think, oh, well, I'm not good at anything. I don't know how anything works. Like, what would I do? And it's like, well, you're working for a tour company right now. Now you know how they work. Why not start your own? And that's exactly what she did. And she's done so extremely successfully. And I think the other cool thing is, you know, she set these goals and she just keeps busting through them. And it just shows us like how we put ourselves in a box of what we think we're capable of and what we think we're worth. And to those entrepreneurs out there who do own a business, who do have clients of some sort, I loved the way that Christine approached like just treating people like a human. Going back to that kind of aha moment when she was working for all these companies where she didn't feel like she was getting treated like a human, where she wasn't really enjoying her work. One of her main focuses is to make sure that all of her customers, all of the people that work for her, all of them feel super valued. Even the people at the restaurants that are working at the restaurants that they're visiting, she wants them to feel valued. She wants to overtip them. She wants to be super gracious. And that's how she's been so successful. She's been collecting reviews. And these are genuine reviews because people are having an amazing time on these trips. They have these awesome tour guides who are pumped to go to work because they're getting incentivized. They're getting all these bonuses for getting reviews like with their names in it, or they're getting bonuses for this and for that. And Christine's just kind of got it down to a science. It's like treat people how you want to be treated. And then the business will grow on itself. Yeah, it's definitely true that Christine could have maybe had some like higher profit margins for this short window of time, but she chose to instead create something sustainable and something that's good for the community and something that's going to build to a bigger picture. Like this is more of a long-term play and a more sustainable play. And I really appreciate that. Like, yeah, she could have cut some corners and maybe not paid people quite as well. And again, had those bigger margins for a short period of time. But then, you know, same thing would happen that happened to her. Like her employees would start leaving because they weren't happy. She wouldn't have those connections with the businesses and wouldn't have probably give her the loyalty that they give her. The other thing that I really liked about the way she went about creating a business is she found something that was a relatively low startup cost. So she's not having to go out there and make all this food or try to start her own restaurants. She's just sourcing things that are already out there and she's just putting a construct around it and helping people navigate those restaurants. And now it's time for the call to action. And so today's call to action is about kind of the whole theme of this episode and what we were just talking about, why Christine is so successful and what she calls social capital, just treating people like people. So whether it's in your work or whether it's in your relationships with your family or with your friends, just treat people a little better, have a little bit more of a conscious effort to treat people like they want to be treated. So when someone hands you a coffee and they hand you to it two minutes late at your Starbucks and your Dunkin' Donuts or wherever... You know not to curse at that person. You don't have to be mad at that person. It might not even be their fault. So just be a little more conscious and a little more gracious and let people know that they're doing a good job. It's definitely a great call to action, Cody. And if everybody out there enjoyed this episode, even half as much as we did, and you want to get more details around Christine and the business she's created, you can find all of that via our show notes at thefyshow.com slash Christine. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. 
And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.